This podcast is brought to you by Benjamin, a workflow automation engine that allows advisors to focus on their clients rather than data management. Learn more at getbenjamin.com. I believe what we're going to see in the next 10 years, I really believe this, and I'm going to make it happen if I can, is that financial advisors are going to wake up to the idea that they're actually, they don't own a financial advice business. They own an intellectual property business. Hmm. That what they get paid for is wisdom. Today on Bridging the Gap, I have the honor of speaking with Carl Richards. Carl is one of those thought leaders that I have been following for so long and was so grateful to have him on our podcast. Carl Richards is the creator of The Behavior Gap, a certified financial planner and creator of the Sketch Guy column. Carl and I had a dynamic conversation that could have extended on for hours because I was so excited to have him on our podcast. And Carl opened up about his impact he has made on this industry and his journey to his success today. We also broke into the topics of changing the way we deliver clients' expectations and rerouting them to their goals, the importance beyond becoming emotionally connected with our clients, and we break down what the client can and cannot control and how to make the change. It's just such an insightful conversation, and I'm so grateful for having Carl on our podcast because he's made an impact on me and I know he's made an impact on many of you and definitely on this industry. This is one of those conversations you definitely don't want to miss. And now let's jump into my conversation with Carl Richards. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Carl Richards, gosh, man, I've been waiting to have you on Bridging the Gap for a long time. So I'm honored to have you. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for taking time to join us here today. How are you doing? I'm good, Matt. Thank you. Super excited to chat. This will be fun. Yeah, man. I've been uh, following everything that you've done. I think you definitely don't remember it because I was one of the many that we ran into at a conference when you were giving out the one-page financial plan book. And uh, I still got it on my bookshelf, signed to my name and everything. Um, And just following all the sketches, man. Gosh, it may have been like an e-money conference, maybe? Were you at an e-money mm. conference speaking once? I don't know. Uh, I don't, know. I don't yeah, remember when it was. Been... It was PC, right? It was pre-COVID um, yeah. period of time. So, But dude, I, I'm really excited about jumping into kind of your journey and everything that you've gone through and the impact you've made on the financial advisor industry and the focus on feelings and emotion and what you're doing with the sketches. And you know, I always just love to, to learn, and I know you wrote about it in, in your book, The Behavior Gap, of kind of your your journey here. I know you applied for a job in security and then ended up finding out that it was in securities, uh, which right, you know, right. I can understand the difference. But for, for everybody that hasn't read The Behavior Gap, tell us about how you got here and kind of what led to you writing for the New York Times and sketching these awesome, yeah. simple sketches that are so powerful. Tell us your journey. Mm. Yeah, thank you. That's super nice of you. Um, so I've told the security guard story so many times that I can't tell that. But I, I got... Needless to say, I got into the industry, speaking large, if I use that term industry, by accident. Uh, I didn't know what I was applying for. I I, I didn't know anything about it. I was an undeclared major at university, so I I really had no clue. I wasn't brought up around money or financial concepts. But it didn't take long for me to start to understand that like I first, when I first got into the industry, I thought, oh, I think I got it. It's about calculators. You know, they were, they gave me a calculator at training. So this must be a, a calculator job. And, you know, that was interesting enough, but it didn't take very long. My first sort of interaction with humans, 
in this job, I quickly understood it wasn't about, and I, I didn't make this conclusion then, but I, the experience I had was like, well, this isn't about calculators, right? It's, why is everybody so mad? Or why is everybody so excited? Why is that person yelling? Like that kind of noticing that kind of thing and being like, well, this doesn't feel like math to me. And that's really why I stayed was because humans and feelings and money are endlessly fascinating. And that job was in a large call center. And then I left the large call center and I worked, went to work for a big brokerage firm and had my own clients. And that just furthered the like, wow, this is fascinating. Um, after a couple of years there, I, I started to notice things. I, I remember specifically, I was sitting around a conference room table with some really smart, successful clients. They were super smart, super successful. And I was trying to describe a concept that I thought was important to them for the decision that we were trying to make together. And I was just getting these blank stares back. And remember, I, I repeated it twice. They were super smart, successful people. It wasn't their fault that they were getting blank. I was getting blank stares. It was mine. So I felt like I was grasping at straws. Like, And out of, out of an act of really like desperation, I did something I'd never done before. I wasn't a doodler in high school. Like I don't have art journals. I, I took a pottery class when I was eight, right? That's the extent of my heart history. So I'd never really done this before, but I stood up and on the whiteboard that was in the office that I was using, the conference room I was using, wasn't my whiteboard, but I stood up and I drew like, you know, as I recall, it was like a circle and an arrow and a box or something. We were talking about maybe like cash flow and retirement or something. And they were like, oh, I get it now. And I remember that moment being sort of like addicted, that started an addiction to that experience, the experience of taking something that was relatively, certainly intangible, maybe complex, maybe unfamiliar and reducing it down to its simplest form visually. So I started doing that and I noticed clients ask for them. Like they, like I, if I draw, draw, if I sketch something out on a yellow pad, people would try and take the paper. And this is no different than what, you know, my early models were like really good estate planning attorneys. A really good estate planning attorney always has schematics in the plans. Like you see the flow of money from this trust to that one. So I, then I was like, and none of it, I'm trying to make a real point here, actually, that I had no clue. Like, it's really cute mm -hmm. to tell stories in hindsight about how smart you were and the plan you had and the SUF painted on your chest. And we see that in entrepreneurship and all the things all the time. That's a lie. I, and it, well, it's a lie for me. I didn't know. I just, the next step was a client called, said, hey, that thing that you sketched out on the whiteboard, is there any chance you could put it on a piece of paper, scan it? and send it to me. And when I saw it scanned, I was like, huh, again, no grand conclusion, just like, huh, I could send that to other people. I goes, oh, that's interesting. So I put it up on a little blog. I bought the domain name Behavior Gap and because that was one of the first sketches was the gap between investor returns and investment returns and I named it the Behavior Gap and I, I, I bought the domain Behavior Gap. I put it up on a blog and I kept doing it. And I was addicted, like I should have stopped, it made no sense. My wife told me it made no sense. She was right. I should have stopped, but I couldn't. I, I like I tried to stop. Um, nobody was reading it except I thought my mom and my sister. I've since found out my sister was lying. Um, and that was a while, right? That nobody was reading it, but I couldn't stop. I just did the thing, and a few little things happened here and there, and they were little. 
like unnoticeable. And then I got an email and I've kept the email from the editor at the New York Times. And I've since traced down the whole story of exactly how it happened. But the email said something like, hey, I love these. Would you do them for us? And I knew mainly because of my security guard background, I knew to say yes to that and and kind of figure it out later. So that's how the time started. And that was originally a one week, like, hey, we'll just do a week feature. And then at the end of the week, I was like, hey, should we keep doing this? Whoa, how often? How about once a week? Don't you think you'll run out of things to say? I don't know. So that went every week for 10 years. And about two years into it, the book, the first book happened and about Two years later, the second book happened. So that that's and and right about when the first book happened, which is ten years ago now, I sold my RA firm to kind of focus full time on just speaking and writing and teaching. It, and you haven't run out of ideas since. And you know, it's so I think it's such an interesting and just great takeaway for any entrepreneur to think about because you read biographies of successful people, you listen to podcasts of successful people, and they're like. You know, and you're what you're saying. They look back and they had this like grand vision of what they're creating, but that that somewhat is BS. They just took the next step, just like you, of saying, "Hey, this worked. I'm just going to go do the next thing. Like maybe I just put this up on a blog, and then maybe I do this." But there wasn't like you had this plotted journey that you're going to follow to then reach to the potential of the impact that you've made on an entire industry. And I think that that's something should be inspiring to any entrepreneur, right? Just take that next step and just keep going and see where it goes. I wish, I mean, I, I've been, there's, there's a few things that make me really, really mad. And that, that narrative of taking credit for things, that narrative of pretending like you had some grand plan is one of the ones that makes me really, cause it does real damage. And the real damage is that those of us who are just starting or trying to start something new, think that everybody else had it all figured out. And Therefore, we spend an awful lot of time trying to sort through that and, and the fear and the worry. And, and most of the time, we won't start because we don't know the end from the beginning. And everybody else seems to know the end from the beginning because, look, they've written seven steps to how to you know, get 500,000 followers on Twitter or whatever. Like Twitter's become a giant pile of these threads of like, look, here's the success. And so I wish more of us, let me, I'll just tell you a super quick story. There's an author who I'm, I'm a really good friend with this author and he has a book that sold millions of copies. And he was here in Park City not too long ago. We were on a hike and I, I was talking about like, what, what do you want to write next? And he said, I don't, I don't know that I'm going to. And I was like, why? He said, well, I caught lightning in a bottle once. I said, well, how, and I've seen threads. I've seen case studies and threads about how to repeat how to repeat the success of X, the same person. And so I was like, well, geez, I'll just call him Jim. That's not his name. I was like, Jim, oh, why don't you just repeat? And he's like, I couldn't repeat. So if, if Jim can't repeat Jim, why do we think we should write stories about how to repeat Jim's success? Not even Jim can repeat Jim's success. <laughs> so I, I think we just all need to understand we're all figuring it out. And in fact, I think that goes to the heart of financial planning in the first place too is like, it's not about being precisely correct today. It's about being less wrong tomorrow. And like you've got to, action yields information, right? And that new information is only available if you act. So I, anyway, sorry to go on a tangent on that. I just think it's really important. 
it reminds me, and when I was reading through the behavior gap, there's a lot of similarities to like your outcome. You have to take a process based on the data that you have. And you're not nec- just because you have a good process doesn't mean you're going to have a good outcome because you don't know all the information until the outcome comes. And it reminds me of the book Annie Dukes wrote about thinking in bets, which is a very similar mentality of like poker. You don't know. You have to make a quick decision with anything that you have, but you don't, even if you make the right decision, it doesn't mean you're going to have the a good outcome necessarily because so much can happen. And then the idea of financial planning, everybody's like, I need to have all of this information and you know, I need to have a plan. I need to have insurance. I need to be able to, I need to have it down to a T and a budget and all this stuff. And you know what? You don't know how you're going to feel tomorrow, which is going to drive your decisions with money. And how can you plan that out? And it just paralyzes people from making these decisions because of the world that we're in, that we all look back on our lives and we we play you know Monday morning quarterback of this is exactly how I got here. But if you're in that moment 12 years ago, you didn't know the hell you're going to do two years in the future at yeah, that Matt, point. Matt, how, how would I even set that as a, even as a goal? It hadn't even crossed my mind. I, I, I have a goal. I'm a kid from the hills in Utah with a bunch of cardstock and Sharpie and no background ever. Like I skipped all the writing classes in college. I have a goal. I'm going to write for the New York Times. Like it would never have even occurred to me. And then, oh, how about I'll write a book for Penguin? Like it would have never occurred to me. So that doesn't mean that like having some intention, a goal gives me some sort of sense of direction and a little bit of gravitational pull. I'm a fan of goals done correctly. But really the, the real stuff happens in the action, right? We take an action we notice if tailwind shows up and tailwind shows up in the form of people and resources kind of rallying behind you, then often the tailwind's really, really light at first. And if tailwind doesn't show up, we say, huh, I thought that was the right direction. Yeah, maybe that's not. And we, so we have strong opinions loosely held mm-hmm. and we act. And I, look, I'll just, because this is like a can of worms, let me just, let me give you a model for it. I've been studying complexity theory for the last couple of years and it's like my favorite thing. Because we're making condition, we're making really important decisions under with incomplete information. It's like irreducible uncertainty. That's that's actually financial planning too, right? Making really important decisions in the face of irreducible uncertainty. And the reason this entire conversation we've had so far, the reason it happens is we think we live in a simple world. We want to live in a simple, so simple, complicated, complex chaos. That's the levels of of systems, right? We think we live in a simple system. You do A, you understand the process, you get B. That's what we think we live in. It's what all the books are, that's every single book in the personal finance section, every book in entrepreneur section, the art section, whatever, the diet section, it's like you do A, you this is the process, you'll get B. That's what we think we live in. And we all want that because it makes sense and we, we desperately want the world to make sense. A complicated system, one step up is you do A, there's a thing that goes on that you can explain with the benefit of hindsight and you get B. So it looks kind of complicated, but you can explain it with the benefit of hindsight and you get B. That's a complicated system. One step up is a complex system. This is where humans actually live, here or chaos, but we certainly don't live in a simple world. And a complex system, you do A, a thing goes on that you don't understand and even, this is critical, even with the benefit of hindsight, you can't explain it. In fact, the, the, one of my favorite researchers on this, Dave Snowden, says, the only thing you have 
with the benefit of hindsight, is story and myth. So good, right? So you do A, this thing goes on, you don't understand it, you can't even explain it afterwards. And you sometimes get B, you sometimes get C, you sometimes get Z, you don't know exactly. We live in a complex adaptive system and we are acting as if we live in a simple system. We're mismatched. That's the problem. And the, this is the final thing on this. The literature is really clear. The only way to navigate a complex adaptive system, in other words, reality, like where we live, the only way to navigate it, there's only one way. Get really clear about where you are today and solve for the next local optimum. In other words, take the next step. Reset. When you take the next step, new information will become available. You'll solve for the next local optimum. Reset, 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 over, 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 till you die. Like that's actually the only way to do it. I, I mean, that, it, it reminds me, I'm looking up at my bookshelf. It reminds me of a book called It Takes What It Takes by Trevor Moad, which is, mm. it, it just a, he's, a, he's a sports psychologist, but he's really great. And he talks about, I'm, I'm a big sports fan. And I, I, you know, he talks about Saban and how Saban talks about the only thing that we can control, whether we want to win the national championship or not, is our next action in our next play. And I don't want, yep. he never talks about winning a national championship to his team. He never talks about any of that because he knows that there's so much that can happen and uncontrollable that he can't even process it, that all I can control is my next action and my next play. Yeah. Can I yeah. go and do I know how to play the game. Just go do it again. It's not like I need to try harder. It's just go do what you do and then learn the next thing. And then what did you learn? And then go do it again and then do it again. Yeah. And you know what happens? We may look up and win. But I mean, because we're living in a simple world. So is there a way to help people move from that simple world, the way you live in a simple world to the way that you live in a complex world? Because that is financial planning, right? Everybody's like, how did you not know crypto was going to go down 75%? Like, how did you not know that? It's like, well, I don't, I don't know. I just take what I have. How? Because that impacts all of our financial decisions. Has is there in a way that someone can help guide them to that thought process of understanding that better? Yeah. Well, I, so we got to be super clear. We we live in a complicated, sorry, complicated. a complex world, bordering on chaos, right? <laughs> and we're acting as if we live in a simple world. And the reason is because we want things to make sense. We don't like uncertainty. Living in complexity requires you to acknowledge the uncertainty. And I just think that's, in other words, acknowledge reality. And so to answer your question, the dilemma is as an industry, speaking, again, speaking broadly, but even as like hardcore real financial planners, like technical rock stars, super good, we have fallen prey We've fallen into the trap of becoming sellers of certainty because certainty is what everyone wants to buy. So it's really easy to sell. The problem is it's impossible to deliver. And so, and again, it's, it, it's what everybody wants. It's what, it's what all your competitors are, are promising. It's what, it's what I've, I've even seen ads like delivering certainty. There, there's like, there's no, you can't. And so the reason, I think one of the fundamental reasons people are so unhappy generally with our industry is because they've been let down so many times. Wait, you told me this. You, I mean, you can go all the way just to the investment piece to get a real clear picture of this. Like, just look at senior level, like huge fly around on my jet style research teams at big firms that make all their quarterly and monthly forecasts. And they're wrong all the time. 
And so at some point people, and then you go all the way from there to like, you drew a 30 year line for me called a financial plan and it didn't work out the way you said it would. And I'm only one year into it. How about the insurance industry with all, I've seen so many, I think they're generally variable life projections. I've seen a, I don't know. I've seen a thousand variable life projections. I've never seen one go the way it said it would go. So we've been Mm -hmm. selling certainty which has a predictable result, which is disappointment because things don't show up the way that they're supposed to. So the, how do we change that? Which is your question. Like how we change it is we just start, look, we might have to play a seer. I, I like to think of them as righteous tricks. A righteous trick is in service of the client versus a bait and switch, which would be in service of the, of the planner or the advisor. So a series of righteous tricks would be I have to greet people with what they expect, which is, I'm here, kid, for the, what What do you got for me? What's the best performing mutual fund? Whatever, right? Well, I know that's a fool's game. I know any client I win based on performance, I will lose based on performance, just to use the investment example. So I, I have a choice. I can either sort of Nick Murray them, you know, like, that's not important. Get out. You know, like, 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 like that, which I love. <laughs> or, or I can greet them with empathy where they are, and I could say, you know what? Performance is really important to us too. It's a major driver of the work we do. And then reroute them, the righteous trick. But performance is relative. Like the only thing that really matters is we meet your goal. Why are you investing the money the way you're investing it? Right? Like, so it's just a series of reminding them that what actually matters is why they're doing something. And then emphasizing that planning is a process we got to stop selling it as an event or a product and start helping people understand that the only thing we know for sure about this plan I just did, I'm the best planner in the world. I take this super serious. we got the best calculators ever. Our spreadsheets are huge. And, and it's wrong. We know it'll be wrong. We just don't know how. And that's why we sit down every quarter. We sit down every year. That's why we look at this continually. We're always monitoring it. When you're off course, we'll be there. It's not the course that matters. It's not the line. It's not the map I drew. It's my ability to guide you when the landscape changes. Like that's, mm-hmm. we got to just start thinking that way and then talking that way. And then eventually the tools will catch up because all of our tools are built on delivering certainty. I mean, when you have a tool that delivers to the third decimal place, I'm 97.2457% confident in a Monte Carlo tool. Like our tools will catch up at some point to help us realize like, you navigate, you navigate a complex system differently than you would navigate a simple system. You, you talk about planning and, and the industry is speaking more towards planning, mainly because investment management has become commoditized and hopefully more people are realizing that everything just reverts to the mean and that and you can't really outpace just natural markets from that standpoint. And so more people are focusing on planning. Now that you know, when you think about planning and I'm, I'm trying to, I still, I love this idea of, you know, a world of chaos and wanting to live in a simple world. And this may be me thinking in a simple mindset, um, which is probably some of the problem. And I want you to diagnose me and tell me that, and I'm, I'm okay Mm -hmm. with it. I won't cry too much, but, uh, you know, I'm okay. Is you got to really, it sounds like from what I'm hearing is that we've got to break it down into the things that they can control. What can they control? They can control what makes them happy, right? They can control what makes them feel good if they can control you know they can control what they spend they can let's break down into what we can control and let's focus on delivering 
delivering on that as opposed to what we can't control, which is what the heck our investments are going to do or what the heck the markets are going to do, et cetera. Let's control what we can today and then we'll change those controls tomorrow based on the new knowledge we have from yesterday and then we'll continue from that way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I, I think to me it all starts with connecting people to helping people get really clear to just sort of steal Simon Sinek's work. It starts with why. To help people get really clear about why they're doing this in the first place. And again, that's that often because nobody comes into your office saying, help me get clear. Can I sit on your couch and cry for a minute? Like, I know people don't come in for that. So that, that, that's the first righteous trick is like, you know, why are we, we all know this. We all know it's a silly question that human, it's a reasonable question. I understand why, why the humans outside my window ask this question, but it's a dumb question. Like, how give me some like a new perspective client like or somebody considering like we've all been asked like how's your performance been well that's a ridiculous question because it depends on why like every client it's different so we all know this but then we we kind of fall prey to it so i think it starts with getting really clear about why so just having some conversation and we we refer to this as a discovery meeting right like just some conversation a discovery meeting you can use bill backrack's work or John Bowen has taught this question. Uh, Dan Sullivan wrote a book called The Dan Sullivan Question, which is great. George Kinder is the master, right, um, of if you want to go deep. You know, Dan Sullen, S-O-L-I-N. Dan, Dan even has a, a couple of ways to do this in his book. So it's not hard to find questions. The, the hard part, so the questions you ask to help people get clear about why, it's not hard to figure out which questions. The hard part is actually asking them. Right. And, and then sitting in that space with someone and not interrupting and not jumping in and filling. Cause if, if you ask a good question by definition, it will most likely be one somebody has never asked, but asked before. And they'll say something like, Oh, I, I don't know. I've never thought about that. And when they say that about something as fundamental as why is money important to you? Or if we were meeting three years from today, Matt, what would have to happen over the next three years financially in order for you to feel like the last three years have been a success? It's going to be uncomfortable. And that's why it's hard to ask this question. So you figure out a really good question. You ask it. The first question actually doesn't matter nearly as much as the follow-ups. And the follow-ups are easy. Like my favorite is, and what else? Tell me more. Why was that important? Like I, I have a whole list of them. I just keep repeating them. I can't believe how, how many times you can say and what else. Just a nice, thoughtful pause. Write something down on a piece of paper. Oh, and what else? What brought you in today? Da, da, da. Huh. And what else? The dilemma is, of course, what brought you in today? Somebody says something, the advice monster jumps out. That's what uh, um, Michael Bungay-Stanger calls it. The advice, advice monster, his website is MBS Works. MBS Works. The advice monster jumps out because we want to solve the problem. And that's why our advice is almost universally bad is because it's the wrong problem, right? <laughs> it was the first one. that. So it's fine advice. It was just for the wrong problem. So, and what else? And why is that important? Tell me more. And then we finally get to the spot where we're like, oh, oh, I get it, right? You just want to have time. You're a busy ER doctor, the managing partner at your firm, you just want to have time to think about having a family. Oh, I get it. That's an actual example from somebody who walked into the big broker's firm with the bull as its symbol with the look on their face of like, what have you got for me, kid? 
10 minutes later, they're crying on the couch saying, I just, I just want to think about having a family. How was I supposed to help them with their investments if I didn't know that? And what question on your risk tolerance questionnaire was that going to help? Was that going to come up? You know what I mean? So that's how it starts to me. The ultimate thing they can control is, is getting clear over time about what's really important. You know, I, the amount of times of having people cry in the office has led to having just tissues and Kleenex there because it becomes, we are a therapist, right? In a sense, we, we need to be thinking that way as opposed to analyst in some sense of we are more therapeutic uh, in nature. I, I, I go to the question though, you know, we get to this point, they have a why, right? They, you understand their why it's because they want to think about having kids. And you got you now you can build a plan towards that and you can then adjust the plan. But it all comes back to what you always say, money equals feelings. And it still yeah. comes to a managing feelings. Yeah. And that being an advisor's biggest, biggest job is helping to manage people's feelings. But I think that we have a terrible time doing it. So we have to, as an industry, grow to being able to manage feelings so much more. But how can we get people in this industry that are analytical, numbers oriented, to move to this soft feelings, you know, they can't, I don't even know if they can, they have that, right? They're just so analytical yeah. in this industry. And I mean, that seems like the most difficult thing. Have you, how have you seen people get there? They can ask questions, but if you don't yeah. have true insight feeling of like nature wanting to go with that, it doesn't do any good from that standpoint. Like that's where I see the biggest challenge of getting to. Yeah, I know it's a, it's a central problem and I'm not even suggesting that everybody should. Like, I don't know. I, I like, there's plenty of, other ways to build a business, I guess. Um, I I just don't know what they are and how long they'll last. But, you know, a couple of things come to mind. Number one, you know, you could, we're seeing this more often where people people actually intentionally partner with somebody who's really, really good at the emotional intelligence side of the business. We've also seen, I don't want to partner with somebody, we've also seen just people practice. Like, it's just all we're talking about is asking good questions and listening. It's actually really hard because you got to let go of all the I know the answer you've got to seed control of the agenda even though you can keep people on track but I mean I, I'm not really interested in asking questions that I know the answer to if I'm only interested in asking questions that I don't know the answer to that's, that's the kind of questions I like I immediately there's a little bit of fear that's like well wait a minute you don't know the answer well what if something comes up well I mean there's a million ways out of that like you know what that's a really good question I don't know you know, what do you think? Or, you know what? I don't know. We give me, give me a day after our meeting. I'll go find out, right? Like whatever, like nobody's, nobody's ever died by saying, I don't know. So maybe it would be helpful to bring this back really quick to the idea of like, I'm not saying that everybody should have tissues in the office. Maybe I am, but I, I all I'm saying is, look, if the, remember this all started because I was trying to close the behavior gap. I was an investment person, I, institutional consulting, and I kept noticing the investors were not getting the return of their own investments. Dalbar's done a study on this, which whatever, I don't know about the methodology and if the number's right, I don't really care about what the number is, but Morningstar's repeated it enough, the number's much smaller for Morningstar, that I know there's a problem there. How do we do that? Well, I thought we just educated people. We spray them with facts and figures. Do you know the average bear market only does last this long? It's been this long. If you miss the best 11 days, best 10 days, whatever, we spray people with facts and figures. Well, how does that work? Well, it doesn't work. People are in the middle of making an irrational decision. You're going to try and reason with them. That never works. Try it with a teenager. So then 
then the next thing is goals. Let's tie them to goals. So the whole reason I care about this is behavior out here that feels like I should do it. I'm a client. I'm a human. It feels like I should do this. I should sell. That market's really scary. My neighbor's selling. Everyone around me selling. I'm going to call my planner. I call my advisor. I say, aren't we going to do something? My advisor sprays me with facts and figures. I hang up. I'm just mad at them. But if my advisor says, oh, geez, Matt, you know what's funny? I mean, not funny really, but when I watch the news right now, I get scared too, right? Greet with empathy. Hey, would it be okay before we go any further? Please hold method. Can I go grab your file? Please hold, right? Even if I have the file in front of me. Creates a little bit of space. We can let everybody settle down, fight or flight, boom. I pull out the file. The first thing I do with the file is I say, hey, Matt, before we get to uh, the reasonable fear that you have right now about what's going on in the market, before we get there, would it be okay if we just review real quickly? Like I remember from our first meeting, I think we've actually reviewed this every meeting. You told me that time outside mainly with your family, time with your family, mainly outside, that's mine, time with your family, mainly outside, and serving in your church and community are the most important things. That's like why we're doing this work. Is that still true? Oh, yeah, yeah, totally, Matt. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Oh, based on that, we had this goal of doing this, 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 and this, goals built out of values, right? And based on that, are those goals still true? Yeah. And then based on that, we built this portfolio that was intentionally designed to help you meet those goals still in the same place. Like we've checked, and by the way, I've checked all the products. Everybody's op, every, Everything's acting the way we would have expected it to op, operate in this market environment. Like there's nothing blowing up here. I, I'm on it. If something does, I'll be right there, right? So like that's, that's the process is we're taking them out of the trees, the branches that they don't control, back to the grounding that they do control so that they can say no to something that feels like a, they have to say yes to or they're going to die. And the only reason they can say no is because we've given them a bigger yes. The bigger yes was, hey, is it right that you time with your family mainly outside? Yeah, 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 thank you. And then it gets to the point where you do that enough and the client just calls and says, hey, Matt, just tell me that story again. I mean, like they know what's coming. Hey, thanks. Talk to you next time. So that, that's practically, that's how I see it. it it's, you can be as woo-woo as you want, as new age as you want, as life planning as you want, fine, great. But that's like that brass tacks of how I help people behave correctly with their investments. Right. You focus on, the, on what, what's most meaningful to them and you keep that focus on that side of it. And you, 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 allow, you allow everything else to work out. And I, I want to flip the script for one second and then I'll let you get back to your, your day-to-day. I want to flip it on to the client right? Because the client, you know, and I think you put out a, a newsletter this recently about this because of the chaos that's going on in the world. You know, they listen to, they see all, like they have so much information that they can consume. It is so hard to decipher what is honest and real, what is BS. And then being in a, mm-hmm. wanting a simple world, we're trying to find that simple answer to get rich quick or to solve all of our problems quickly you know, they listen to Kramer, they listen to this, so they read this, you know, Jerome Powell talked and he said inflation, like they, we don't even know what that means. How can just consumers help to be better understanding of deciding like who is the right person to talk to? What is the right thing to listen to? Because I think that that's going to be the constant challenge that advisors are up against is that they're up against these people that are said to be really experts, but they may not be experts. So they don't even care about what they may care, but they don't really have your best interest in mind. And that's going to be the constant battle that's just going to become harder and harder 
I think, for advisors because it's the other stuff pulls at their feelings and their emotions and simplifies it for them. Yeah, I, look, I mean, the reality is that we we know, like the data is clear that the right answer to that question is you listen to no one. Like there's no one to listen to. If there was anybody that had predictive value is what we refer to it as, then we would tell you to listen to them. And I remember my, I had a client. That's the reason I started a weekly newsletter was I had a client. His name was Rick. And Rick would call me and be like, hey, I, and I always knew what Rick was reading by the questions he would ask. So he would call and ask about gold or whatever. And I knew, I was like, have you been reading? And I would always joke with him. I'm like, Rick, have you been reading the Financial Pornography Network? Have you been, or the Financial Pornography Magazine? And I was like, I'm sending the Financial Pornography Police over to your house to collect all that stuff. And he was like, after a couple of those kind of rounds of that, he finally said, you know what, Carl, you know what annoys me about you? And I was like, what? He's like, you always tell me what I shouldn't read. Why don't you tell me what I should read? Which is why I started the weekly newsletter. It was originally called Investor C, which is a stupid name. But the idea was like, you know, no matter how much vitamin C you take today, you're going to have to take some more tomorrow. Like, we're never going to solve this problem. And so we started, based on Rick's, some conversations with Rick, we started a financial pornography detox program. And so we would tell clients, like after maybe like the second or third meeting, kind of as we were walking to the door, we would joke and say, hey, I don't know if you know, but you've just entered our financial pornography detox program. They're like, what? What? I'd be like, yeah, it's, I don't know. It takes between six and 18 months. At some point, you're going to wake up one day and go, all that stuff I used to think mattered. I'm not even paying attention anymore. Like you might wake up one day and call the USA Today money section, the funny section, right? You're going to realize it's just a circus and it's just entertainment. And if you're into circuses and entertainment, it's totally fine. Like, but you're not going to act on it anymore. So that's that's kind of how we handled it. I, I mean, I think the best way, one practical tip for clients listening and advisors can use this tip as as humans, and then they can also use it for their clients, is just to keep a journal of things you feel like you should do with your money based on what you read in the news. Like some people, like professionals call this a trade journal, you know, like so you you keep track of your mistakes. So if you write down, I really think I should buy, move all my money to crypto. Like you write that down, you write the date down, you don't do it, but you write it down. And then you have the ability to go back and go, oh my gosh, look how often I'm wrong. The only reason these charlatans are on TV is because nobody actually keeps them accountable. They can just keep playing the game, playing the game, playing the game. So the best answer is ignore it. Just literally ignore it. It does you no good. It feels wrong. It feels like your job is to be informed. Like, you've got to be informed. This is your survival. It's your kids. But the data is clear. It's worthless. Mm. It is. Uh, and it's it's hard to get that into people's minds. And I For think sure. that, to your point, I think so many advisors are defending their worth. And that's why they're always telling clients, like, don't do that. They're like, you shouldn't read that. You shouldn't do that. Don't do that. Listen to me. As opposed to being really kind of EQ and emotionally connected with them. But there are a lot of advisors that are getting to that point. And you talked about this idea of kind of going out and being more open to sharing your thoughts. Like we need more people like you that have that mentality of EQ, you know, sharing your thoughts. And I think there's a lot of advisors out there. And you talked about like doing work, public work, helping people out, the public out in nature. And just kind of you wrote an article about it of saying, you just got to go do it. And the people aren't going to read it or think or, you know, they probably don't care about it. And that's true. 
but you just got to keep doing it. And just, it's like what you did with your sketches. Like nobody was reading it, but then you just kept doing it. I, I'd love for you to kind of expand on what your meaning of, you know, doing public work and why it's uh, so important, you think, for the industry, for individuals or for the consumer, whoever it may be in your mind. I, I'm just curious on that because it's such an interesting topic that I was reading about. Nobody knows or believes that real financial advisors exist. I know this because I've tried to tell them and they they look at me like I'm talking about the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, like a fairy tale. Hundreds of times. All my colleagues at the New York Times, any other journalist, any friend. And by real, I just mean somebody who's technically a, a rock star and also honest and also really good at helping you get goal clarification over time. So like somebody I'd send my mom to, like nobody believes that they exist. So that's fact number one. Fact number two is most real financial planners do not have a very large marketing budget. They certainly don't have a multi-million dollar marketing budget. So the people who have multi-million dollar marketing budgets are, are out there and they're telling the same story. The only way people are going to actually start understanding what real financial advice is actually about and the difference that it makes in people's lives are if more of us start telling stories about it. And, and doing that in public. And so it's pretty simple. It's, it's really simple. Start a figure out, I, I, I'm hesitant to even get specific about the artifacts because everybody likes to argue about them. It's like Seth Godin says that Stephen King was asked at a conference once during a Q&A, Stephen King, right? Thousands of people in the room. The first question was, what pencil do you use, Mr. King? And the reason is because if Mr. King says a pencil that I don't like, I have a place to hide. I can say that's a privilege that you get to buy that pencil. That's a this, like, I don't like that pencil. I can't find that pencil. So I'm hesitant to use, but look, start a blog, start a blog, start posting on LinkedIn, start a, a podcast. I don't care what the artifact is. Go to your local newspaper and get to know, and I, it would take us hours to unpack how to do this, but go to your local newspaper, whoever writes the business section and start sending them valuable information over time. Find some place where you can do work in public. Now, what are you going to talk about? You have wisdom coming out of your ears. You just don't believe it anymore because you've been doing it for so long. You think everybody knows how to explain standard deviation. Nobody does. Like if they took a stats class in college, they forgot it as fast as possible. That story you use about why you should have insurance, right? How you explain asset allocation. So just start getting that. I believe what we're going to see in the next 10 years, I really believe this, and I'm going to make it happen if I can is that financial advisors are going to wake up to the idea that they're actually, they don't own a financial advice business. They own an intellectual property business. Hmm. That what they get paid for is wisdom. And the closer they can link their compensation to the wisdom, the better. And they're going to start creating wisdom products. What we would call that traditionally, if we were talking 20 years ago, is books, right? But, but now there's online courses and podcasts and membership groups. And so... You have so much intellectual property in your head and you think it's not valuable because you've been doing it so long that you've forgotten what it's like to not know the difference between a growth fund and a growth and income fund, like to use a stupid example. Like most people don't even know at all what those words mean and you've forgotten. So everything you learn, every day you learn something, you think about something, you read something. Would you just do that process you're already doing in public? Pull up your iPhone, hit voice memo, hit record. Oh, I just read this interesting article. The person made this claim. I'm not sure about that. I, you know, one story I've seen, I was working with a friend, da, 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 hit record, hire somebody, 
throw that voice memo in a Dropbox folder, tell them to turn it into things. Like that's the simple version. I love that. I want to be on that train. So as you're doing, I'm going to help promote that because I think that that's the train that everybody needs to be on because we have knowledge. Now, I, I have my two normal questions to close out the podcast, and but I have one question. I wrote it down on a, on a I always do a commonplace book when I read a book. I write down mm. all the like highlights I have. And I got it from you know Ryan Holiday and, and a lot of what he does and Tim Ferriss and that and the likes. There's this line in the book that I want you to explain if you could. If you remember <laughs> what you do, because I think it's so great. And it's also really relevant for this period of time that we're in with the chaos that we're in in the markets. Going to cash until things, quote, clear up is like jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. Do you yeah. remember that line? Totally. Walk yeah. me through that. Because I can visualize that. So that's like me being in a firing pan, oil going into the fire. Like, walk me yeah. through that. I can visualize it so well. Yeah. Like, look, the reason you, the reason you sell after a market's declined, because I mean, you wouldn't know to sell before, like you get scared and nervous and you, you want to sell, is you think it will relieve some pain. Just get me out. Right. And, and I, and I want to be deeply empathetic here. Like it, that makes total sense. Why as a human would feel that way. I'm wired to get away from things that are causing me pain. That's causing me pain. And the reason it's causing me pain mainly is because I'm listening to everybody else. and I'm listening to news and my neighbors and whatever else. If I ignore it, it actually doesn't cause me any pain because I don't know what's going on, but that's beside the point. It makes sense that it, everybody's getting out. Everybody's doing, aren't we going to do something? So you think by selling, you're going to eliminate pain. Well, the problem is you, it doesn't actually eliminate the pain because now you've got a new decision to make, right? Unless it's a permanent decision, which is normally what I'd ask people. Like if I got to the end of the scary markets conversation that we walked through earlier and they were still like, yeah, cute story, Carl, get me out. The last, the last little last ditch effort was always like, okay, I got you. Um, let's do this though. Is this a permanent decision? Oh, no, no, no. I just want to get out till the dust settles. Right. This is one of the things. Oh, okay. Well, when let's do this. Let's set some parameters around what it will look like when the dust settles. Oh, well, the economy would be better. Oh, okay. The economy would be better. What are your neighbors going to be saying? Oh, my neighbors would be happy again. Oh, okay, good. And just create, and you have to ask this with the right amount of tongue in cheek, right? But just curious, like if the economy is better and your neighbors are happy again, where do you think the market will be? Oh, it'll be higher. Oh, uh, uh, right. Like forget I called. So that's the problem is if we sell, we've jumped into the fire. Now we're going to sit around all day wondering when to get back in. And that's going to be just as painful as just staying the course. Right. And it would be far more painful than staying the course and ignoring the news. That's what that was. I about. love it. I love it. Such a, such a great thing to remember. I've had many of those conversations before. Well, Carl, I mean, I'm super appreciative of you joining me, but I can't let you go without asking my two normal questions that I do at the end. And one of being a constant learner, I love to learn in these conversations, but I also love to learn what books they're reading so that I can go learn what they learned as well. So outside of your books, right, which everybody knows they need to go buy, go buy Carl Richard's book, The Behavior Gap, The One Page Financial Plan, whatever it may be. What is one book that you think that everybody should read that would impact them, that can make them better, smarter, whatever it may be? Yeah, so I don't know about the word should, but I know that a one book that's had a massive impact on me that I have now, I've almost, I mean, I don't have it memorized, but I feel like I do. I'm listening to it again, is Pema Chodron. So P-E-M-A, Chodron. Her book, When Things Fall Apart, is so good. And it's had a 
I, in fact, I'm now reading, like I think she's written 17 books. I'm trying to read all of them now. But if if I were, if I could make a suggestion, get Pema Children's book on Audible. And she doesn't read it. I, I've been telling everybody for two years that she reads it because it's like that. Good. I was sure that it was her, but it, it's not. It, but it's that good. It's so, and listen to one chapter while you walk outside. So just make, it, they're like 15 to 17 minutes. Go do that every day till you're done. So I, don't, I can't remember, 12, 14 days, something like that. Only one chapter. And then hit pause. Here's what I love to do. Go on an hour-long walk or run, typically in the mountains. Go on an hour-long, listen to it for the first 15 to 17 minutes, and then turn everything else off. No more, in, no, nothing else. 45 more minutes outside. It's changed my life. And I guess that's all I'll say about it. Pema Children. All right. I'm doing it. I'm doing the audible. I'm going to go walk around in the scorching heat of Atlanta. I love it. Exactly. I can't wait. Exactly. Go early for, in the morning. For two hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Last last one. Uh, and it comes from Barron's. And at their conferences, they always ask their panelists, all right, what's one piece of actionable advice that people can t- should take away or could take away or that you would hope they take away from this conversation that can help them be better if they had to take one piece of actionable advice from our conversation here today? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I don't know, other than please understand the value of the work that you do and the value of the work. I hope it's been clear that the value of the work you do is not in the map that you draw, right? It, it's in being able to look somebody in the eyes when things show up and we're seeing it right now, right? And the only thing scarier than being on a plane in turbulence is if the pilot came on and said, hey, I've never been, I don't know what's going on. Like, I, uh, you know what? There was no turbulence on the thing when we took off. If the pilot started defending themselves, like, this is not a big deal, actually. I don't know why you're all... What if the pilot instead came on and said, hey, we've hit a little unexpected turbulence, but I've done this before. I, I've got you. Everybody's going to be fine. I'll update you as we find updates, right? I think the ability to, to understand that that's what we're doing right now like right now, you're on the phone right now saying, I got you. And instead of saying, do you know the average bear market? No, we're not going to do that anymore. First a hug, then the lecture, right? If you need the lecture, first the hug, then the facts. So hopefully that's helpful. Gosh, that's awesome, man. Well, I, as I said at the opening, this has been a podcast I've been looking forward to for a long time. I appreciate all your work and your insight. And I know many people that listen here already follow you, but if they don't, for some unknown reason, what's the best way for them to follow you, stay in touch with you and continue to gain the knowledge that you're passing along to this industry and to the people? Yeah. So for all the financial professionals listening, the the best way actually is to go to the Society of Advice, thesocietyofadvice.com. And I can't tell you much more, but there's a place to put an email address in and then some things happen. So you go to the Society of Advice. And if you're not into that fun game we play, um, you can always follow me on Twitter, which is at Behavior Gap. Awesome. Carl Richards, you're the man. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for spending some time with us here on Bridging the Gap. Cheers, Matt. That was really, really fun. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 